Well, good day, listeners. I'm Mercedes Carnathon, and I'm joined by my fellow editors, Carol Watson and Fatima Rodriguez, associate editor and guest editor for Circulation. And we'd like to welcome you to Circulation on the Run for our second annual disparities issue. We have a lot of articles to discuss today, many of which we'll summarize, but we encourage you to access the issue and read the articles. First off, Fatima, I believe you have a paper to discuss. Sure thing, Mercy. My first paper is a thought-provoking article by Neely Shaw and co-authors from Northwestern University that examine factors associated with the racial gap in premature cardiovascular disease. So this study used data from a well-known cardiac cohort that aims to identify factors that begin in young adulthood and predict the development of future coronary artery risk. The objective of this study was to examine the relative contributions of clinical versus social factors in explaining the persistent black-white gap in premature cardiovascular disease. After following around 5,000 black and white study participants for a median of 34 years, black men and women had a higher risk of premature cardiovascular disease. After controlling for multi-level individual and neighborhood level factors measured in young adulthood, the racial differences in premature cardiovascular disease were attenuated. The authors found that the greatest contributors to this racial disparity were not only clinical factors, but also neighborhood and socioeconomic factors. The relative explanatory power of each of these factors varied by men and women. This is really noteworthy since we spend so much of our time in clinical medicine focusing on identifying and managing traditional risk factors, but in reality, these structural factors and inequities are critically important to address and contribute to differences in clinical risk factors downstream. Thank you so much, Fatima. That was a really excellent summary. And now I'm turning to you, Carol. I'd love to hear what you're going to be talking about today. I'd like to discuss the paper, Association of Neighborhood Level Material Deprivation with Atrial Fibrillation Care in a Single-Payer Healthcare System Population-Based Cohort Study. This is by Dr. Abdelkadir and colleagues. So in this study, the authors sought to determine whether there was an association between neighborhood material deprivation, and by that we mean inability to attain the basic needs of life, and clinical outcomes in individuals with atrial fibrillation. The kicker here is they did this in an area with universal health care, so they wanted to see if you took away the differences between the ability to see a physician or get your drugs paid for, if you would see any disparities. So they performed a population-based cohort study, individuals over the age of 66 years of age with atrial fibrillation in the Canadian province of Ontario. They have universal healthcare there and full drug coverage for anyone over 65. The primary exposure was neighborhood material deprivation. That's a metric used to estimate the inability to attain basic material needs like healthy foods, safe housing. Neighborhoods were categorized by quintile, from the least deprived, quintile one, to the most deprived, quintile five. They find that among about 350,000 individuals with atrial fibrillation, their mean age was 79, and about half of them were women. Those in the most deprived neighborhoods, quintile five, had a higher prevalence of cardiovascular risk factors and non-cardiovascular comorbidity relative to those who are in the least deprived areas. Even after adjusting for all the confounders, they found that those in the most deprived neighborhoods had higher hazards of death, stroke, heart failure, and bleeding relative to those in the least deprived neighborhoods. They also found that despite having universal health care and drug coverage, those in the most deprived neighborhoods were less likely to visit a cardiologist, 
less likely to receive rhythm control interventions such as ablation and have worse outcomes. In an accompanying editorial by Uteve Essien, he reminds us that intervening only on traditional markers of access like health insurance and drug costs may not be sufficient to achieve health equity. We have to address all of the structural needs that make people unable to get good health. Further, he points out that the association between atrial fibrillation and neighborhood deprivation is very likely true with other cardiovascular conditions as well. So Mercy and Fatima, this just reminds us again that addressing all the social determinants of health are necessary to achieve the best health outcomes. Thanks so much, Carol. You know, I really appreciate that summary of that important piece focusing on a different domain of disparity. My first paper is an excellent piece led by one of my favorite other associate editors at Circulation, Dr. Wendy Post from Johns Hopkins University. And I see a familiar name on here. That's yours, Carol. You two are joined by an all-star list of authors to describe race and ethnic differences in all-cause and cardiovascular mortality in the multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis. MESA is a longitudinal cohort study that launched in 2000 and recruited just over 6,800 adults who identified as Black, White, Hispanic, and Chinese. While the study participants were initially free from cardiovascular disease, over an average of 16 years of follow-up, 364 participants died from cardiovascular disease. There are a number of novel findings in this paper that led our editor-in-chief to select it as his pick of the issue. The finding that really stands out to me is how much of an influence the social determinants of health had on black versus white disparities in cardiovascular mortality. In fact, after adjusting for socioeconomic status, the disparities were nearly eliminated. Other critically important findings are that the oft-described Hispanic paradox of lower cardiovascular mortality in Hispanics as compared with white adults was demonstrated in this population. And finally, we have longitudinal data on Asians living in the United States. Asian participants in MESA had similar rates of cardiovascular disease mortality as their white counterparts. There's so much to learn in this well-designed cohort study and so many hypotheses about how social determinants and structural racism influence the disparities that we see. So Fatima, I'd like to turn to you next. What else do you have to share? Thank you, Marcy. My second paper is a research letter from my home institution of Stanford University, led by my colleague, Dr. Sho Clark, discussing how race and ethnicity stratification for polygenic risk scores may mask disparities among Hispanic individuals. This study used data from the Million Veteran Program to determine how self-identified race and ethnicity impact the performance of polygenic risk scores in predicting coronary artery disease. The investigators found that the current polygenic risk scores predict coronary artery disease similarly well in Hispanic and non-Hispanic white individuals. However, what I found most interesting is that there was so much more heterogeneity among Hispanic individuals as measured by K-means clustering than among non-Hispanic white individuals. And this study really confirms that there is much more heterogeneity within populations than between populations. And this is particularly true as we think of the extreme diversity of Hispanic populations. Lumping Hispanic populations into one category may mask important differences in cardiovascular risk prediction outcomes, and even the notions of the Hispanic paradox that you just discussed, Marcy. 
I appreciate you bringing that up again, because there are so many different nuances to the observations that we see in these studies. But I'll keep moving because we have an embarrassment of riches in this wonderful issue. So, Carol, I'll turn back to you. Thanks, Mercy. The next paper I'd like to discuss is an On My Mind piece by Peter Liu and colleagues, and they entitled it Achieving Health Equities in the Indigenous Peoples of Canada, Learning is Adaptable for Diverse Populations. Now, the authors note that lessons learned about addressing health disparities from Indigenous peoples in Canada can offer a lot of new lessons for other populations where there are similar disparities. They begin by offering historical perspective. And they say that most of the health disparities for the indigenous populations originate from early colonization and dismantling of the sociocultural, economic, educational, and health foundations the indigenous communities had historically. It's true that that is true in a number of different countries. This is data from Canada, but we can see similar things in the United States. With the recognition of the historical and ongoing social and health inequities, the Canadian government initiated what they call the Truth and Reconciliation Commission to recommend a path towards reconciliation and to create best practices for engaging Indigenous populations. For instance, in Canada, any health research or implementation program requires the direct engagement of Indigenous communities and their elders. They have to try to develop culturally safe environment including what they say, quote unquote, anti-racism and cultural safety education for all, both indigenous and non-indigenous populations. They wanna really respect community values, customs and traditions, including the access to traditional foods and healing practices and the support from elders. So they really are making it a very important point that cultural sensitivity is absolutely critical engaging these populations. You want to jointly collect data whenever available to track progress and outcomes. And they offer many examples of successful programs developed using these principles, such as the Diabetes and My Nation program in British Columbia, or the Mobile Diabetic Telehealth Clinic. They offer discussion of future initiatives as well that can help other communities in Canada, such as there's an initiative addressing hypertension in the Chinese population in Canada. So this thoughtful paper really looks at disparities in unique populations in Canada, but more importantly, it offers potential roadmaps for other populations, solutions to address longstanding legacies of racism and colonialism. Thank you so much, Carol, for that description from our neighbors from the north. My second paper is really relevant during this hot month of July in much of the United States and the upper hemisphere. And that's because Samid Katana and colleagues from the University of Pennsylvania discuss how extreme heat is associated with higher cardiovascular mortality. For those of us who welcome the heat of summer and the opportunity to get out from behind our desks and exposed to some vitamin D, Katana and colleagues reviewed county-level daily data on temperature and linked those data with mortality rates. But before I summarize the findings, I invite you to California-based cardiologists to join me in Chicago, where extreme heat is really only a problem for about 30 days a year. The authors found that between 2008 and 2017, when the heat index was above 90 degrees Fahrenheit or 32.2 degrees Celsius, there was a significantly higher monthly cardiovascular mortality rate, 
In total, extreme heat was associated with nearly 6,000 additional deaths from cardiovascular disease. And sadly, Black adults, older adults, and men bore the greatest burden of mortality rates from extreme heat. So, you know, we can all take lessons from that. But turning to you now, Fatima. Thanks so much, Mercy. I'm from Florida, so I can definitely relate to the issues of extreme heat, but I'm very happy for the perfect year-round weather here in Northern California. My third paper is led by Dr. Zubair and colleagues from Cedars-Sinai, and it describes changes in outcomes by race in children listed for heart transplantation in the United States. I won't give all the details, but this research letter really nicely summarizes how the 2016 pediatric heart allocation policy revisions may have inadvertently widened health disparities between white and non-white children. This article touches on the difference between equality and equity, even in the most well-intentioned national policies, and I invite our listeners to read the full details in this special circulation edition. Thanks, Fatima. Carol. The next paper I'd like to discuss is a community-based cluster randomized pilot trial of a cardiovascular mobile health intervention, preliminary findings of the FAITH trial from La Princess Brewer and colleagues from the Mayo Clinic. So it's well known that African-Americans have suboptimal cardiovascular health metrics, such as less regular physical activity, suboptimal blood pressure levels, suboptimal diets, the authors of this study hypothesized that developing a mobile health intervention in partnership with trusted institutions, such as African-American churches, might be an effective means to promote cardiovascular health in African-American patients. So using a community-based participatory research approach, they developed the FAITH trial. FAITH stands for Fostering African-American Improvement in Total Cardiovascular Health. The manuscript in this issue reports feasibility and preliminary efficacy findings from this refined community-informed mobile health intervention using the FAITH app developed by the investigators. They performed a cluster randomized control trial with participants from 16 different churches in the Rochester, Minnesota and Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota areas. The clusters were randomized to receive the FAITH app, that was the intervention group, or were assigned to a delayed intervention program. The 10-week intervention featured culturally relative and sensitive information modules focused on American Heart Association's Life Simple 7. Primary outcomes were changes in the mean Life Simple 7 score from baseline to six months post-intervention. They enrolled 85 participants, mean age was 52, and about 71% were female. At baseline, the mean Life Simple 7 score was 6.8, and 44% of the, the individuals were characterized as being in poor cardiovascular health. The mean Life Simple 7 score of the intervention group after the end of the intervention increased by 1.9 points. In the control comparator group, it only increased by 0.7 points. This is highly statistically significant with p-value of less than 0.0001 at six months. Now this faith trial demonstrated preliminary findings that suggest that a culturally sensitive and mobile health lifestyle intervention could be efficacious in promoting ideal cardiovascular health among African-Americans. I think what's so important about this is that they partnered with a very trusted group, the churches, and getting buy-in to a community that has had many reasons not to trust in the past, I think is critically important. Well, thank you so much, Carol. 
My third paper is an original research investigation by Anoop Shah and colleagues from the University of Edinburgh, arguing that socioeconomic deprivation is an unrecognized risk factor for cardiovascular disease. In their study, the authors evaluated how risk scores with and without indicators of socioeconomic deprivation performed in a population study in Scotland, the Generation Scotland Scottish Family Health Study of over 15,000 adults. Again, I won't give away all the details so that I keep our listeners excited to read the article, but all risk scores aren't created equally, and the observed versus expected number of events varied based on whether the risk score included socioeconomic indicators or not. Further, the performance of the risk scores varied based on the degree of deprivation that participants were currently experiencing. It's a thought-provoking piece that may challenge us to reconsider how we identify risks for cardiovascular disease in the population. And I'm turning to you now, Fatima. Sure thing, Mercy. My last paper is led by Dr. Anna Krawitz and is looking at how differences in comorbidities explain racial disparities in peripheral vascular interventions. This study used Medicare fee-for-service data from 2016 to 2018 to examine risks of death and major amputation one year following peripheral endovascular intervention. They found that Black Medicare beneficiaries had higher population-level need for peripheral endovascular interventions, and that Black race was associated with adverse events following these interventions. However, after adjusting for the higher prevalence of comorbidities such as diabetes, hypertension, and chronic kidney disease in Black populations, this observation was eliminated. Again, like a common theme in many of the articles we've discussed today, this is to suggest that moving upstream to reduce risk factors is really critical to eliminate disparities in cardiovascular disease outcomes, and this includes the understudied disease of peripheral arterial disease. Black adults were also less likely to be treated with guideline-directed medical therapies in this study. Well, thank you so much, Carol and Fatima, for your wonderful summaries of all of the excellent pieces in this issue. And I'd like to thank all of the fantastic investigators who submitted their really fantastic work so that we could produce this issue. It really keep them coming. We thank you for this. Well, thank you. So now we'll transition to our feature discussion with Drs. Wadera and Kilawazi from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and the Harvard Medical School. Welcome to this episode of Circulation on the Run podcast. I'm really pleased to host this feature discussion. My name is Mercedes Carnathon from the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. And I'm pleased to have with us today, Drs. Ashley Kilwazi and Rishi Wadhera from Beth Israel Deaconess and the Harvard Medical School. And they shared with us a really important piece of work for our disparities issue that is describing disparities in cardiovascular mortality between Black Black and white adults in the United States from 1999 to 2019. First of all, I really want to thank you both for submitting your important work to circulation. Thanks so much, Mercedes, and thanks for the opportunity to submit and revise our manuscript. Thanks so much for having us. Wonderful. So, you know, I'd like to start out with you, Rishi. Tell our listeners about the objectives of your study and what your motivation was for carrying out this work. Well, I think it's been well established that Black adults are disproportionately impacted by cardiovascular disease and experience worse cardiovascular outcomes 
due to systemic inequities and structural racism. And so the goal of our study was really to perform a comprehensive national evaluation of how age-adjusted cardiovascular mortality rates have changed for Black adults compared with white adults over the past two decades in the United States with a focus on some key subgroups like younger adults and women. In addition, because we know that the neighborhood, community, or environment in which you live in the U.S. has an immense influence on cardiovascular health, we also examine changes in cardiovascular mortality for Black and white adults by geographic region, rurality, and neighborhood racial segregation. And our primary objective is really to understand whether disparities in cardiovascular outcomes between Black and white adults improved worsened or didn't change from 1999 to 2019. And there are some reasons to think we might have made progress in narrowing the mortality gap between these groups over this time period. There have been substantial improvements in preventative care and treatments for cardiovascular disease over the past two decades. And the expansion of insurance coverage under the Affordable Care Act led to increases in access to care, cardiovascular risk factor screening and treatment, particularly for Black adults, at the same time, we know that Black adults were disproportionately affected by the economic recession of 2008 and experienced worsening poverty, job loss, and wealth loss, all of which are inextricably tied to cardiovascular health and more broadly health. And so that was our interest in really exploring how disparities in cardiovascular mortality have changed amongst Black and white adults between 1999 and 2019. Thank you so much for that summary. It's really nice to have these sort of pieces that really outline for us a lot of data and across a number of different domains, because it allows us really a chance to think about those data and how we can use those data in order to help improve health. So tell me a little bit, Ashley, about what your study found. Absolutely. Yeah. So in the United States, you know, overall, we found that age-adjusted cardiovascular mortality rates declined for both populations, so both Black and white adults, by around 40% from 1999 to 2019. So encouraging declines across the country. We found that these patterns were similar for both women and men when we stratified by gender over the 20-year period. While mortality rates declined in all regions, we still did find um, disparities when we stratified by age. So between younger and older Black women versus younger and older Black men, we found that younger Black men and Black women were dying at higher rates and were at increased risk of death from cardiovascular mortality compared to younger white women and men, respectively. We also found that Black women and men living in rural areas consistently experienced highest mortality rates. And then finally, Black adults living in higher areas of residential racial segregation and compared to those living in low to moderate areas of residential racial segregation had higher mortality rates as well. Wow, this is a lot, and it's really describing a lot of disparities across multiple domains that we can easily measure. Which aspects of these results in your work did you find the most surprising, Ashley? Yeah, I was intrigued, I think, overall by just the gaps. I was very encouraged by, I think, the declines over time um, on an absolute scale. The country has made a lot of progress in terms of reducing cardiovascular mortality rates for both groups. But still, by the end of the study period, there were notable gaps between Black adults and white adults, particularly between Black 
younger women and white younger women, we see that by the end of the study period, Black younger women still remain over two times the risk of death from cardiovascular disease than younger white women, which I think leaves something to be desired from a public health and health policy standpoint with regards to how we're going to kind of decrease these disparities. You know, I wanted to follow up on that point. Why do you think you see such disparities between Black and white younger women? I love the opportunity of the podcast to allow authors a chance to speculate beyond what they would do in the paper. Absolutely. I think that there are a lot of great efforts on a national scale right now to kind of address the disparities between Black and white women. The Association of Black Cardiologists, for example, had a whole paper out about ways to really target and provide preventative measures for Black women. So for example, working with communities where there's a high proportion of Black women to figure out what community-based research looks like, engaging with churches, different types of methods to really understand the barriers that Black women face towards um, obtaining preventative care. I think the disparities that we're seeing could potentially parallel, you know, well-known and documented disparities in maternal health outcomes. So I think from a perspective of preventative care, really thinking about what are the barriers to healthy cardiovascular profiles for Black women pre and postnatally to ensure that their cardiovascular health is maximal before and after the pregnancy. And then I think, you know, broadly, the challenges that Black women face mirror the challenges of Black adults, plus the additions of like social stressors, you know, things that we looked at in this study, neighborhood residential racial segregation, access to health care, and all of those things kind of contribute to the profile that Black women face in terms of being often the heads of their households as well, and carrying on a lot of different societal challenges. Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate that. You know, as I read the paper, One of the findings that I found the most surprising, and it was challenging for me to understand, is that while the absolute difference in rates was declining or getting smaller over time between Black and white men and women, the rate ratios remained elevated across the course of time. I think these concepts can be a little challenging to understand, not just to me, but to others as well, that when one measure of effect is showing progress, but another is still reporting a disparity. Rishi, could you explain for our listeners how we can see progress on one metric, but still find a mortality rate ratio that's 1.3 times higher in Black as compared with white men, for example? Thanks for that really important question, Mercedes. Just to summarize, we presented two outcomes that compared cardiovascular deaths among Black and white adults in our paper, absolute rate differences, and then separately, rate ratios. And I think both measures provide important complementary insights. I think that understanding the absolute rate difference in cardiovascular deaths is critically important from a public health perspective because it characterizes excess deaths experienced by Black adults compared with white adults. The fact that the absolute rate difference in cardiovascular deaths has narrowed over the past two decades between these groups is positive news. In contrast, the rate ratio provides us with important insights on the relative difference or disparity or gap between Black and white adults. So again, both are important. Both provide sort of synergistic and complementary insights. And just to sort of cement that as an example, you were talking to Ashley earlier about some of the patterns we noticed amongst younger Black women and white women, the absolute rate difference in cardiovascular deaths between younger Black women 
compared to younger white women decreased from 91 per 100,000 in 1999 to about 56 per 100,000 in 2019. And that, that's good progress. However, yeah. our rate ratio analysis indicated that still in 2019, young Black women were 2.3 times more likely to die of cardiovascular causes than young white women, highlighting that we still have a lot of work to do to address disparities between these groups, some of which, you know, Ashley already talked about. Thank you so much for that excellent explanation. I know it's certainly... I find it alarming to hear, but then I remember I'm actually not young anymore, so maybe uh, this doesn't apply to me quite as much. But no, I appreciate the explanation. So your report was really unique in that you studied these disparities, as we discussed, across a number of domains, age, geography, even racial residential segregation. Whereas the pronounced disparities have been reported in a few of the other domains that you studied, I'm really interested in hearing more about racial residential segregation. I think a lot of people don't fully understand what the concept is and the ways in which racial residential segregation may contribute to higher rates of cardiovascular death among Blacks. Ashley, would you mind explaining to us first what racial residential segregation is, and then really how it would contribute to higher rates of cardiovascular death? Yeah, absolutely. So in its simplest terms, you know, racial residential segregation is just the physical separation of two or more groups by race and or ethnicity into different neighborhoods. What gets tricky is like the long history within the United States of how we got to this point where you see numerous degrees of segregation across the country. You know, residential racial segregation in the United States dates back to policies pre-World War II that resulted in kind of discriminatory banking practices and policies, for example, um, reverse redlining and gentrification, much of which the extent still exists today. And that's what we see kind of, I think, in our results when we looked at high versus low to moderate areas of residential racial segregation and how those kind of track onto the trends that we see in cardiovascular mortality over time. Residential racial segregation impacts almost every aspect of life. You can imagine where you live, we know definitely impacts, for example, your zip code can impact health outcomes. We've seen um, individuals' cardiovascular health kind of trend with, you know, something as simple as your zip code, where you live really does impact your, for example, access to affordable housing, health insurance, where your primary care physician is, whether or not you even have one, what that trip looks like to see your primary care physician. Is it hours on end and unrealistic to get to, or is it just around the corner? educational opportunities, which leads to income, which we know is linked to cardiovascular disease, employment, and all of these aspects, even access to green space. In some metropolitan areas that are more segregated, we see that, you know, Black adults, for example, have less access to green space, and numerous studies have shown that that does impact overall health, but then also from a cardiovascular disease perspective as well. So I think that, you know, given that we know that lack of access to all of these key determinants can adversely affect cardiovascular mortality and just general cardiovascular health, it I think is very interesting that we found that, you know, there was this link between high residential racial segregation and cardiovascular mortality that we definitely can look into more and understand kind of in more detail that the mechanisms at play and ways to intervene. And just to layer on to and reinforce Ashley's really excellent answer to that question, we know that Black adults are more likely to live in disadvantaged neighborhoods because of the intentionally racist policies that were put in place many decades ago that Ashley described so well. And Black communities, 
and segregated communities, as Ashley mentioned, are less likely to have access to primary care, high quality hospital care and green spaces, but also pharmacies and healthy foods. And we also know there's a lot of empirical work that's shown that black communities disproportionately experience psychosocial stressors, trauma. Also, these communities are disproportionately exposed to climate change, such as extreme heat. There was a recent paper that extreme heat has been linked to increases in cardiovascular mortality and disproportionately affects black communities. These communities are also disproportionately exposed to pollution. All of these things we know are linked to cardiovascular health and are, represent the effects of, again, intentionally racist policies that were put into place many decades ago, the effects of which still persist today, which will require equally intentional policies that aim to dismantle these longstanding effects if we hope to make progress in advancing health equity and, and specifically cardiovascular health equity. You know, I appreciate the facility with which the two of you address the multiple complex contributors to cardiovascular health. It's even more impressive coming from two clinicians. So I really appreciate you taking the time to explain this. And, you know, this is where I really like the opportunity to open up and say, what more do you want your clinical peers to know about? For example, you know, how does this affect the day-to-day -day encounters that you have in clinic with Black patients and other patients who've been traditionally underrepresented? How do you hope your clinical peers will use this information to promote cardiovascular health equity? And I'll open it up to either of you to respond. I can yes. get on that one. I think that, you know, the disparities that our paper highlights really requires a multi-system level approach to tackling from public health to public policy. But I think at a provider level, to your question, Mercedes, physicians must be able to, I think, at first read the data and understand that these disparities exist. If there's no insight with regards to the risk profiles that simply Black women and Black men have because of systemic racism, because of these inequities, then I think we're already kind of steps behind where we need to be. So recognizing disparities in cardiovascular disease burden for Black men and women, prioritizing education on cardiovascular risk. A lot of the conditions are, you know, preventable with appropriate access to care and education around these topics. And so um, providing education about the signs and symptoms of heart disease and treatment options for Black men and women, recognizing the history of medical mistreatment for Black adults in this country and really tailoring the approach towards the individual who comes into the office who might have very valid reasons for hesitating to take a medication or a lot of questions that need time and consideration. At a research level, I think more data and resources should be spent on studying risk prevention and treatment for um, cardiovascular disease in Black adults and really developing more community-based models that really get at the specific interventions that work within Black communities that are culturally specific, that are targeted and relevant for the populations that we're talking about. I think finally, and I'll let Rishi chime in, I think there's a shockingly low level of racial and ethnic representation in the field of cardiology as a whole, and we know that diversity in healthcare can improve health outcomes. So from a cardiology perspective, I think training the next generation of Black young men and women to take up their seats at the table and really advocate for some of these issues alongside individuals who are already doing great work would be essential towards reducing disparities that we see. And so all of the above, I think I would encourage for, for my colleagues. Thank you so much. Rishi, 
any final thoughts? No, I'll just add on to Ashley's, again, really outstanding response that, you know, this is a tension we face when we see patients in cardiology clinic all the time. I think, you know, awareness about disparities and the multiple factors that contribute to disparities in cardiovascular health, particularly as it relates to race and ethnicity, are increasingly being recognized as, as they should be. And one of the challenges, you know, how much can clinicians do within the bounds of hospital walls? You know, we can make sure that we get patients the treatments they need. We can make sure we screen patients appropriately. But we know, as we've discussed, that so many factors beyond hospital walls, like widening income inequality that's disproportionately affected Black adults and has been worsening over the last several decades, widening educational inequality that, again, disproportionately affects Black adults and has been worsening over decades, also affect health. So I think thinking about how clinicians, researchers, and policymakers can work together to address some of these challenges, issues, and broader social determinants of health that also exist outside our clinical practice or hospital walls will be really, really important if we are serious about advancing health equity in this country. I don't think we can operate in silos anymore in the clinical world, in the research world, in the policymaking world. We need more researchers and uh, clinicians to have a seat at the table when it comes to policymaking, individuals who understand how all of these complex factors are inextricably tied to one another so that we can seek and implement solutions that advance cardiovascular health. Thank you so much. You know, the insights that we've gotten from not only your written work, but even more importantly, this opportunity to speak with you today and share with our readership have just been invaluable. And I really appreciate the amount of time that you spent in putting in preparing the manuscript and really contextualizing the findings with us today, as well as in writing. So thank you so much for contributing this really important work to our annual disparities issue. Thank you so much, Mercedes. We really appreciate all the time you and the circulation team took to make the manuscript stronger. Thank you so much for having us. It was truly an honor to have this conversation and to submit our work. Well, thank you. That wraps up our feature discussion for this episode of Circulation on the Run podcast. I'm Mercedes Carnathon from Northwestern University, associate editor and guest editor of the Disparities Issues. So thank you so much. This program is copyright of the American Heart Association 2022. The opinions expressed by speakers in this podcast are their own and not necessarily those of the editors or of the American Heart Association. For more, please visit ahajournals.org.